How are the leaders at all levels of management tackling the toughest challenges each day? That's the question. And this podcast is the answer. I'm Rob Fonte, and I'm bringing on the brightest minds in management to share practical solutions to those challenges you're facing. Let's get ready to jam. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Leadership Jam Session. I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach with today's episode. I'm going to take the time to talk a little bit more about my background. It's been almost two years now since we launched the Leadership Jam Session, and I appreciate all of you for investing the time to tune in and listen to my podcast. And we're quickly approaching 50 episodes. And a big shout out to all my guests over the past two years as well for your willingness to come on and share your experiences with everyone. I think it's important now to perhaps maybe share a little bit about the events, the experiences that helped to shape and mold my leadership principles and philosophies. Because for all of us, that holds true. I'm sure you can point back to specific people, events, all of that listed above that helped shape you on your leadership journey. And for me, there was a big piece of my life that really helped to shape and mold me. Now, some of you out there know this fact about me, which is that I used to be a firefighter many, many years ago, uh, I guess almost 18 years ago, I used to be a firefighter where I was a firefighter for about 13 years. Now, even though some of you might have known that, very few know that I was involved in 9-11, that I was asked to lead a team on 9-11 that day. And this episode along with the next few episodes, is going to be dedicated to the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And you'll hear me in today's episode share a little bit of my background, as I mentioned, but even talk a little bit about the events that day that led up to the point where I was told that I needed to pick my team that we were going in. This is obviously something that I don't really talk about that much, but as I said, I thought it was important for you to learn a little bit more about my background. And the timing of this, I thought, was important as we approach the anniversary, the 20-year anniversary of 9-11, that my hope is that this also serves as, as a reminder that we should never forget what happened that day, especially for those that paid the ultimate price, that made the ultimate sacrifice. Now, again, my story pales in comparison to those that did make the ultimate sacrifice. But as I said, it's my hope that at least it serves as a reminder of what happened that day and that we never forget. So let's talk a little bit about my time in the fire department, which I was there for about 13 years. And this department was in the town that I grew up in, which was in New Jersey. And I was an officer eight of those 13 years. And it's important to mention that this department was all, it was made up of all volunteers, from the firefighters all the way up to the chief. And it's important to share that because it gives a little bit of a different perspective in terms of how my leadership approaches were molded. You see, the way it works in, the, in a volunteer fire department anyway, is that the way you become an officer has nothing to do with being hand-selected by the chief, being going through any type of testing or anything like that. Uh, it was purely based on being nominated and voted in by all members of the department, all firefighters, everyone. 
Now, granted, you had to have certain certifications and you had to meet certain criterias, but outside of that, you were voted in by the members of the department every year. Now think about that. It is a very humbling experience sitting there every year waiting to see, do the men and women you lead, do they have the confidence and do they trust you enough to allow you to continue to lead them? As I said, that is a very humbling experience. Now, what that also speaks to is the fact that if you're men and women, if you're leading them into a dangerous situation, no matter what awaits you, rest assured, they want to know that you have the chops and that you have their trust to lead them through that. It has nothing to do with how much people like you, it has nothing to do with whose camp are you in, none of that matters. Your people either respect and trust you, or they don't. And if not, you're out. It's as simple as that. And we went through that process every year. Officers were nominated and voted on. And that was something that really impacted me and, and shaped and molded my entire approach to leadership. Because what I learned, and I didn't realize this then, it was only years later as I reflect back, what I realized going through that experience was it taught me that I should never take my people for granted. It also taught me that my number one responsibility is to my people. It's not about how popular I am. It's not about who I am trying to impress. I was being measured every year by the firefighters based on not my words, but my actions, how I proved myself in the trenches with them. Because at the end of the day, your people just want to know that you have their best interest at heart, that you understand what they're up against, and that you can demonstrate that you know that, and that I would never ask them to do something that I wouldn't do myself. And so I started formulating a very simple approach that my entire leadership approach is based on three very basic principles. My job is to protect, coach, and guide my people. And I was very conscientious of the fact that my number one responsibility on the fire scene, no matter what we were coming up against, was to make sure I did everything within my control to make sure we all went home together. And so with that, I focused on identifying everyone's strengths, their gaps. We trained, and we trained all the time. Something that I took with me even into the private sector on my expectations with my teams over the years that we should always be striving to be the best we possibly can be, whatever role we're in. That we should be always looking to enhance our skills, increase our knowledge. No one's perfect but we should always strive to try to get better and better. And I also realized that there was a level of expectation within the firefighters that if somebody wasn't carrying their weight, that I was going to take care of it. So I didn't have time to think through, should I provide any feedback or is that going to impact how somebody votes for me? None of that. That didn't even come into my thought process. If somebody wasn't carrying their weight, they were going to know about it. And it was up to me to make sure I provided them with the right resources to get them up to speed. Which reminds me of another important 
lesson I learned too, the importance of after any type of incidents, we always debriefed afterwards and reviewed it and walk through what we could have done better. It's part of how I, I coach all my employees today. We sit back and, and we review what could be done better. But that also goes both ways. I always look to see, based on my decisions and what I was doing, what, what could I have done better? And even today, I'll ask my employees, what could I do better? Or what is it that you're not getting from me? How can I better support you? That goes a long way with your employees. If we as leaders aren't willing to accept feedback from the people we lead, then we shouldn't be in a position where we're giving feedback. So as I said, going through that experience every year, waiting to see if I was going to be voted back in or tossed out as an officer was a very humbling experience. It taught me a lot about leadership, particularly the fact that nobody wants to work for somebody who is arrogant. That's for sure. What they do want is somebody who is confident somebody who leads by example. And when I say confident, it takes a lot of confidence to admit when you make mistakes, to admit that you don't have all the answers. But you know how to move forward. You know who to tap into. You know who on your team or outside your team, where to go to get the right solutions. So let's talk about where I was on 9-11. Now, I think several of you know my background does come from healthcare. And at that time, I was working for a pharmaceutical company where I, I, was a, I was a sales rep. And as I mentioned, I lived in New Jersey, but my territory was in Brooklyn. And my role was to visit all the healthcare providers in my area in Brooklyn, nurses, physicians, all the healthcare providers, and provide them with resources, answer questions they have about our products, and so forth. And on 9-11, just like any other day, I would make my way towards New York City because the way my territory was positioned, uh, it was easier for me to cut through Manhattan and get into Brooklyn. And the way I would make my way into Manhattan was through the Holland Tunnel, which is located in lower Manhattan, north of the financial district. So the towers were right there. They're very visible from the Holland Tunnel. And there's a series of lights that, that you approach as you make your way towards the entrance of the Holland Tunnel. And I happened to be at the very last light, which means I was probably about maybe 100 yards or so from the entrance. And I'm sitting at the light waiting for change. And all of a sudden, I see everyone getting out of their cars. And I said, huh, well, this is interesting. I haven't seen this one before. And so I got out of my car. And... Everyone was pointing up, and so I'm looking up, and now I see the tower, uh, which happened to be the North Tower, which was the first one hit, and I can see smoke coming out of it, and somebody next to me said, oh, we think a plane hit it, and it's, it's right there. You can see it clear as day, right from the Holland Tunnel, and of course, we're just speculating, as everyone was, and I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe a small plane hit it, maybe, I had no idea it was a passenger plane that, that hit it. And as we're standing there watching, I can see this other plane coming. And I thought to myself, I was like, wow, that's getting pretty close. And then all of a sudden, I just saw it bury itself into the South Tower. You see the explosion, and, and I felt like, I remember vividly, 
the image and I remember thinking to myself, I, I feel like I'm in, in a movie, like a diehard movie or something. And while it only took a few seconds, I felt like time just stopped. And then, and then I realized everyone around me was starting to scream and people started yelling to get away from the Holland Tunnel. Obviously at that point we knew exactly what was going on. And, and some of you may not even realize this, but a few years before that, there was a plot to blow up the Lincoln Tunnel, which was stopped, but that was still at that time fresh in everyone's mind as it was in mine too, because uh, everyone was starting to scream, get away from the tunnel and so forth. So uh, fortunately where I was located, I was um, positioned where I could easily cut across. Uh, there's a series of gas stations separating the entrance versus the, uh, the, the outbound. And I was able to cut across and work my way back home and still, still reeling from, from what I just saw. And as I'm traveling home, all I saw approaching, heading into the city were just streams of undercover, uh, what I assume was FBI or whoever. Uh, you just saw police and all kinds of equipment pouring in in that direction. And again, I didn't live that far from the city. Although it took me usually on a good day, an hour to get in, I was probably home within... 20 minutes or so, maybe half hour. And I walked in inside and, uh, and my wife happened to be home that day. Uh, I forget the reason why, but I think she was waiting for a delivery or something. She had the TV on and I can see her. She was crying. Obviously it was horrifying to see it. I went upstairs and changed. And I think at, at, at that point, as I came down or soon after the first tower collapsed and and I looked at my wife and I said, you know, I'm going to head to the firehouse. Uh, you know, it's not uncommon sometimes when, when some major events where we might have some connections behind the scenes and, and get some more information. And I said, you know, I'm just going to go up there, see if there's anybody around and, and see if I can find out anything more. And I told her, I'll, I'll be back soon. As I was driving there, the, seeing the, the tower collapse, the realization started to hit me that I was probably 10 minutes away from actually being close to that area. And here's the reason why. As a sales rep, pharmaceutical sales rep, at that time, I would get a lot of supplies shipped to me, at least anywhere between 30 to 40 boxes a month. Too much to keep in my house, so I had a storage unit in the town that I lived in, and about once a week I would stop by there to resupply. And it just so happens on 9-11, I stopped by my storage unit to uh, get some, some supplies, which delayed me about 10 minutes. And so remember what I said, I was basically a couple hundred yards, about hundred yards or so from entering the tunnel. If I never stopped for my supplies, I would have been through the Holland Tunnel on Canal Street north of the, the towers. And the reason why I share this is because they obviously shut down, as soon as it happened, they shut down the tunnels and the bridges. I would have been stuck there. And just like any firefighter would have done, I would have tried to get as close as I can, parked my car and tried to walk as close as I can. Now, let me clarify, when I say that, 
it's not that I was going to jump in and help at that point in time. All right, the tower didn't collapse yet. To be clear, we're talking about FDNY, New York City Fire Department, probably one of the, the best fire departments in the world. Trust me when I tell you, there's, there's of no value that I'm going to bring walking up to the scene that's going to help them. These are the best of the best. Any firefighter would have just walked up just to observe. Again, I'm someone who is very curious. I'm someone who likes to watch, observe, and learn from others. I would have gotten as close as I could just to watch to see how they approach this. Nothing more than that. And I would have gotten as close as I could. It's something that I used to think about quite often, obviously. Following the years after that, I, I thought about that. I would think about that a lot. If I never stopped, I would have been, I would have been down there without question. But as I pulled into the firehouse, into the parking lot, that thought quickly disappeared as I got out of my car and was met by the chief of the department Lou Giordino, that walked up to me and said, we just got the call, we're going in. I need you to pick your team. We're leaving in like five minutes. And I looked at him, and as he was walking away, I was walking with him, and I, and I said, all right, what are you talking about? And he turned around and he said, we got the call, we're going in. I'm like, going where? He's like, New York City. And as I turned the corner working my way towards the front of the firehouse, there was just a wall of guys waiting there for me to decide who was going and who was staying. There are a handful of moments on 9-11 that I vividly remember. That was one of them, as I had to sit there and try to decide who was going, try to even just process the fact that we were going into, into New York. You have to remember... This was the first time in the history of New York City Fire Department that they ever had an outside element, an outside department, step foot into their city. The first time in the history of the department. So that just tells you the gravity of the situation. And at the time, our department, although it was all volunteer, we had a very good reputation. We were known for being very aggressive. We were very well experienced and in large part because of where we were located. We were uh, a few towns over from Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is the third largest, I believe it's the third largest city in New Jersey. And we were in there quite often helping out. So we had a lot of experience. Uh, we could definitely hold our own. However, this is a whole different animal. And we're talking about New York City. We were completely way out of our league. And, and I think at the time I was, I was young in my career. I was 30 years old. I was a captain. I believe I was an officer for five years, but still did not have the type of experience that you would find in a major city like New York. And I remember walking by each guy trying to figure out who I was going to take, tapping the ones on the shoulder to get on the rig with me. And at that point, I wasn't even sure. I didn't even know where we were going. I had no idea. All I, what I did know was that I'm asking guys to hop on a rig with me, knowing that hundreds of firefighters already perished. And I remember my heart was just pounding. And, and I'm going to be honest with you. 
I mean, I was scared. I mean, we all were. I mean, just watching the events unfolding, here we are going into New York City, completely out of our element, not even knowing where we're going. It was, it was, a, it was a, a scary feeling. Yet, when we got on the rig, I did take comfort in knowing that I had the right guys with me. I picked the best of the best. I didn't sit there debating who's going to go, who's not. I knew exactly who I wanted, looking at the guys lined up. And, and I also knew that our chief was tagging along, although he was a mutual aid co coordinator. So he was in a different capacity. Wasn't sure if he was going to be with us the whole time. But as we were rolling out, our deputy chief pulled up too, Bobby Walk. And, and I actually um, threw a couple more guys in his car just for good measures because uh, I wanted to make sure I took the right guys. I wanted to make sure I had enough guys, but I wanted to make sure I had the right guys too. So we started making our way to the first staging area, which was the Gothels Bridge. This was located in Elizabeth, New Jersey. It's a bridge that connected New Jersey to Staten Island. So the first staging area was actually on this bridge. Now the town I grew up in was one of 21 towns and each town was going over as a task force, each town sending one team. And I remember we arrived at the Gothels Bridge. We hopped out of the, hopped out of the rig and at this time, the second tower collapsed. And just to give you some, some perspective, 90 minutes prior to that, it was a normal day, just like all of you. I was at the Holland Tunnel, and 90 minutes later, I was right back, except looking at a very different scene. Looking at half a city that I couldn't see anymore, that was covered in smoke and debris. And as we were standing there, waiting for the rest of the task force to arrive, my phone rang, and it was my wife. And if you recall, the last time I spoke to her, which was probably 20 minutes prior to me standing on that bridge, I told her that I was going to the firehouse just to check in and I'd be back soon. So now I'm explaining to her on the bridge what's going on and that we had no idea where we were going yet. And as we were talking, the line went dead. And at that point, all the cellular service went out in the area. So I put my phone away and the rest of the task force by that point arrived and we all hopped on a rig and we started heading into New York. And I do remember, this is one of those other moments I remember, where as we're driving across the bridge into New York, as far as I can see in front of me, and as far as I can see behind me, just a convoy of emergency equipment and teams moving in. And that's just a testament to not only who we are as, as a country, but even just to give you an idea of the willingness of the emergency services, all the men and women who come together at a moment's notice to do what's needed to get done. And what you'll hear on the next episode, which will air this Friday, September 10th, you'll hear from some of the guys that were with me on that day. And you'll hear some stories from their perspective on what they remembered most on that day during our time in New York. And you're gonna hear a little bit of a different perspective. You see, when the towers collapsed, it wiped out a significant amount of, of resources for New York City. As a result, 
they had to bring down, obviously, a lot more equipment, manpower. Many of the firehouses throughout New York were empty. And so that's where they utilized all the resources outside of New York City. Fire departments from across New Jersey, Long Island, all moved in to help out. Some went down to ground zero. Many were sent to fill the empty firehouses just to handle some of the day-to-day calls that were coming in, which is how we were used. And so what you're going to hear on the next episode is some of the stories and some of the perspectives of what went on behind the scenes, riding with and spending time with New York City firefighters. And so we'll pick this back up right where we left off with some of the guys who were with me as we moved into the next staging area in Staten Island where we got our assignment. Thanks again for taking the time to hear a little bit more about my background and how it relates to 9-11. And we'll continue this discussion on the next episode, which will air this Friday, along with some of the firefighters who were with me as we use our stories as a tribute to make sure we never forget what happened on 9-11. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it with a friend or colleague who you think might also get some value from it. I'm Rob Fonte, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Leadership Jam Session Podcast. 